we've discussed the church being saints together. We've discussed the body of Christ, how we're all uniquely individually uh, members of one another. We've talked about being a family of God, where we love each other as, as family, and actually actually feel affection for each other as family, and God being our Father, adopting us as His children. And um, last week we started talking about this idea of temple, that we are um, a temple that that is a house for the Spirit of God. Um, we also talked last week about being citizens of another kingdom and that our lives are to demonstrate the realities of that other kingdom. So we're talking about we're being a temple, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's a that's showing uh, something about a, another kingdom, not a physical kingdom per se, um, but a, a temple, a, a people who are a temple is showing the existence of another kingdom, another king, and um, so our lives should, should display something about that other world. Um, We kind of inferred some realities last week from the Old Testament temple to kind of say, well, the, if, if the New Testament writers, Paul and Peter specifically, are calling the church a temple, well, what did the temple mean to the hearers of that originally? And we said, well, the temple is the focal point of the presence of God. And so if that was true of the Old Testament temple, that it was the focal point of the presence of God, and Paul and Peter say, hey, you guys are the temple, then that should mean something about us. Maybe people should see God in us. It... Uh, the Old Testament temple was holy. Time and time again, it was called holy, the holy temple. And um, we're called the temple, and I think in, in a similar way, we are called to be holy. And the temple, Solomon's temple, was called to tell, or it was built in part to, to tell of or show the glory of God, how great God is, even just by the magnificence of, of the temple itself. And... So today I want to just kind of expand those to a more practical level and talk about kind of one topic real practically. Um, how can we live into this holy temple reality that God has called us to be? So first of all, in, in the light of those first two ideas, that we're the focal point of the presence of God and we are holy. Um, another way maybe to say those things is this. The church stands out. The church stands out. We are set apart, or like other. That's kind of what holy itself means. If you think about or listen to the set apartness that Peter describes in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, like picked out chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Like it's a unique thing, set apart, standing out, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church, saints together, stands out, and our lives together are a proclamation of God's excellencies. And it's also, it's a verbal proclamation of his excellencies as well. If you think about it, we should stand out uh, because we contain something or someone that no one else, that no other organization contains. God's spirit. Um, there's a lot of earthly organizations and clubs where people kind of get together around a common interest, and you can say they're, they're surrounding or they're housing a common interest. Um, there's gym memberships. There's martial arts classes. There's sports leagues. There's fantasy sport leagues. Um, there's, uh, what's that? They're all sports things. There's humanitarian organizations. Ah, there we go. There's um, political <laughs> organizations. <laughs> what? There's food stuff. stuff. There's foodies. Yeah. Food clubs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Book clubs. <laughs> what? Yelp elites. Yelp elites. Convention like hubs, Comic Con, and like these are like good. Okay. Cosplayers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had a guy called the church yesterday, and he was just bewildered that we don't have a bingo club at our church. What? What? Uh, we don't? 
We don't. We do not. Sorry, we had a <laughs> Which is why we don't have any older people in our church. Except for me. Uh, you would play bingo, Charles? I know how to play <laughs> So we contain, the church contains something, like all those things are kind of uh, amoral or amoral, right? It's like it's not that there's something right or wrong with them. But the church, like, is diff- those are all con- housing some human, like, common interest. The church, we actually are we're built on Christ and on the, the teaching of the apostles, and we contain the spirit of God. And so that in and of itself should, should stand out. David said of Solomon's temple, the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So he was saying this temple should stand out from all other temples because it houses the true Yahweh God. Will McCarr, come on in. Um, And so because of that, the temple, the Old Testament temple, was supposed to be miraculous and just the sight to behold, made with these fancy materials and tall and everything else. And the New Testament writers say, you are that temple. Well, how are we to stand out? Like, Just how are we to look different? What should the temple look like? That um, there's a word that the Bible uses to say to stand out, or to stand apart from, or to be distinct, or set apart, or undefiled. Or last week we said alien or other, and that's holy. That's that's what us as the temple of God is called to be. Holy. God's temple is holy. It's the favorite adjective in the Bible for the temple. And again, that's, that, that attribute is not even something that any of these other earthly organizations that we talk about even claim to, for the most part, I don't think they claim to even be holy, but that's something that, that we certainly are called to. So if we are to be holy, which also, another word for that is, is, um, is undefiled, how are we to deal with our defilements? How are we to deal with sin? Um, God takes sin very seriously, right? The temple that Paul writes into in Corinth, or that little display of God's temple, had a lot of defilement in that temple. Like, Paul's writing to address a lot of sin in the Corinthian church. And he says to these people who are struggling through, through sin, he says, do you not know, we talked about this verse last week, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Like, that's serious language. Destroy God's temple, and he will destroy you. So, I, maybe I can kind of confess for us, I think sometimes we take our role, the church, as, um, as an expression kind of of the temple of God, maybe not seriously enough, or even our own personal holiness, maybe not seriously enough. Um, and if we consider just that temple metaphor does a good job in and of itself just to, to remind us we are a dwelling place for God here on earth. And all everything that went into the Old Testament temple and all of the, the care that was taken to, to handle and do things properly around the temple and to not not do things that were wrong, like we should consider us being the temple, there should be some care that we have in our lives, a significant amount of care to make sure that we are, we are becoming a holy temple that is housing a holy God. And maybe sometimes we don't do that, um, we don't consider that enough. So I want to talk about uh, dealing with defilements or dealing with sin. And first, if we're talking about dealing with sin, I just want to make sure it's clear that Jesus dealt with sin on the cross, right? I'm not talking about redoing any of the work that Jesus has done. So when we believe in Christ and when we repent, uh, we, are, we are positionally made holy and undefiled, or, or um, we are, if we, if we die in that moment of repentance, then we are, we are fit to be with God because of Christ. Okay, that's the work that he's accomplished. Um, there's this cool passage in Hebrews 10 that says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So a work to, to um, make 
us wholly, and it was one of the things that it accomplished was finished. He sits down, the work's done, waiting for a time that his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then verse 14 of Hebrews 10 says, For by a single offering, this verse is kind of hard to fathom, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being <laughs> sanctified. He's perfected those who are being sanctified. Those are kind of holy-like words. He's, he's, you could say, he's made holy those who are being made holy. So it's a process that was accomplished in Christ on the cross. We are positionally made holy, but it's a work that he is continuing to do. It's, it's like interesting to me um, how those two things are happening at the same time. Jesus achieves holiness for us once and for all on the cross. Um, and he is also progressively moving us toward holiness. He's actually doing that in us. Like it's it's not just a um, it's it's not just a conceptual thing. Well, Jesus uh, gives us his righteousness on the cross, but it's actually a work we call sanctification, right? It's a work that he's doing in us. He is perfecting us, and one day. Uh, when we are standing face to face with Jesus, we will be like him at that point, which would say, you know, in a, in a perfected state. Um, but by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So in essence, he's already accomplished in Christ what he is currently accomplishing in us. It's a work that's already been completed. Um, I like to think about that kind of step, like kind of... Uh, time travel uh, stuff and, and I, I always like to remind be reminded and remind other people like God's the way that God works is he is not restricted to like a chronological sequence of events like he's kind of just watching everything or waiting for things to unfold if he determines something is going to happen in the future um, like our perfected state then if he's determined that that's going to happen, then to him it's almost it's, it's as if it's happened already. It's it just he does he can like we look at a progress and something that kind of takes steps to complete. But when God is looking at the whole from before the world began and to the the end of all things, it's like this is this is one gigantic plan of God, and he's he doesn't have to. Um, that that's why I. This little side note: I get I'm less and less concerned with if somebody was saved at one point and they seem to walk away from the faith. Were they ever saved in the first place? And what? Like that's us thinking. I think that's fine to wrestle through, but that's us thinking in a real chronological time. Like, well, I at this point I was, and then this point I wasn't, or at this point maybe I was never in the first place. But it's like, well, God actually He knows who His children are and who is going to die in Christ, and so to Him He's not. Okay, I'm electing them now, and now I have to unelect them, and now I'm electing. It's it's all just part of God's plan. Anyway, um, God God works it out. So uh, I like to think about that stuff, but that isn't that's not particularly relevant here. As God's people, this is the relevant part. We are God's holy temple, First uh, Corinthians three and Ephesians two says we are growing into a holy temple. So Christ's work makes us holy. And that's a work that he's doing in sanctification by making us together, by building us into this holy temple. Um, now that that's happened, now that we have been made holy and we're in this process, then practical holiness becomes a fruit of, of true faith and repentance, of that act that God accomplished in Jesus, in us. Then we, we begin to practically um, begin to whatever you want to call it, walk in righteousness or become holy or we're being uh, sanctified, we are actually now being made holy. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So how, the question I want to just talk a little bit about and offer one answer to is how do we become holy? Together as a church, how do we become holy? Um, the first answer is we depend on God's spirit to make us holy. Um, that's true, um, but that kind of passively disengages us, and that's, I don't think, how God has called us to walk through life. So the second answer is we work together toward that in the strength of the spirit for the sake of his glory. So I want to teach just one aspect of that work toward holiness and how we help each other as a church 
in that endeavor to, to be built into a holy temple. Okay, and that um, is the idea we we talked about this three years ago, almost exactly, exactly, um, and that's in confronting sin in the church. Okay. Don't worry, there's nothing specifically that I'm going to confront tonight. Um, or maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we need to. Oh, it seems quite a deep sigh of relief. So if maybe you squirm in your seat a little bit thinking about confrontation. I know people like Keely and, and myself even who are kind of peacemakers and whatever, we do not uh, like the idea of any kind of confrontation. Um, but I think before we talk about it, we're going to talk a little bit about Matthew 18. If you know what that is, we'll get there. Um, but maybe we can just come to some common agreements before we even talk about how can we help one another confront the, the sin in our lives here in this church. Um, some things that I think we can agree on. First of all, God hates evil because he's good. And we want God to hate evil. Like, we don't want God to be down with, with things that are not good. Like, that's, this is something we appreciate about God, is that he hates evil. And Christians, as well, then, we ought to hate evil, as well. Um, I think we can also agree that God hates sin. I mean, sin being maybe an, an element of evil, a big part of it. Sin is what turned creation against God. And sin is what brought on the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus, to, to, to die as a, as a result and as an offering to make propitiation. So, so God hates sin. And as Christians, we also should hate sin. Now, I know we have a, like the kind of flesh part of us that kind of just likes the feeling and, and the temporal kind of nature of some of the gratification of sin. But sin is the opposite of God's goodness. And sin, we know in our, in our right spiritual mind, sin destroys. And sin is what ultimately leads to hell. And the problem of the world, the problems in the world are a result of sin. And if we could eliminate sin, then you eliminate the curse and suffering and death and hopelessness and every other bad thing that we can think of. So we should, like, we want God to hate sin, and we, we ought to hate sin as well. And the Bible teaches we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. We are to confess our sins. We're supposed to repent of sin. We're supposed to flee from sin. And we're going to talk about in a minute how we're supposed to help each other out of that sin. So, we as believers, we should hate evil. We should hate sin. We want God also to hate evil and to hate sin because he's good. Um, another thing I, can, I think we can agree on is God desires fellowship with us. And that fellowship is, is, is truer and practically more a reality to us as sin is eliminated. Sin takes our focus off of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Sin is what distracts us from the goodness of where God wants to lead us. So walking in the light, according to, to John, means that we have fellowship with God. So um, tonight I, I, I feared a little bit it would sound like I was coming across like I was teaching some kind of perfectionism, like as Christians we're, we, can, we need to shoot aim for this place where we will be perfect. I'm telling you, we, we will actually be perfect. That's a work that God's going to do in us. Now, it's not going to come in this life, certainly, but that's the direction that he's moving his, his believers. I mean, he's, he's moving us in that direction. That's what sanctification is. He's preparing us. He, he's making us holy. He's perfecting us um, to be with him, a work that will be only complete when we are um, with him in his presence, claiming the blood of Christ. Um, so I can't be perfect, but I sure would like to be, and I sure would like to have sin out of my way that I can have un, unhindered fellowship and, and uh, relationship and walk with God. So God hates sin. We should, we should hate it. Uh, 
God wants fellowship with us and knows that sin will remove or, or, or sin will help us to fellowship rightly with him and I think we should want the same thing and God gives us the resources to move us in that direction he gives us his spirit for empowerment he gives us directions on how to live and every direction that we need for holiness and some of that direction that he gives us is what we do with the sin in our lives that we see that we will continue to battle this side of heaven so I just I say all that to say like we as 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 sanctified spirit filled people we really want holiness we we want to eliminate sin as much as we can in our lives and that's going to come through submission to God and through through a laying down of our life to to submit to his spirit and and he gives us direction in that on how to go about uh, doing that. So, <clears throat> when somebody comes to correct me or comes comes to me to point something out in my life uh, that maybe I don't see or, or or maybe I'm blatantly kind of um, choosing to not follow the Lord in something, they're pointing out sin in my life where I'm missing the goodness of God and right relationship with God. I should desire that. That should be desirable to me to know and to be offered a, a suggestion or a choice of, of repentance. I think we, I, I understand why we struggle with the idea of like confronting or being confronted on sin, but I only don't want your correction because I want my sin. The only reason why I'm avoiding the correction is because, oh, I, I really don't want to have to stop doing what I'm doing, or I really don't want to have to start doing what I ought to be doing. I only don't want your correction because I want my sin, and that's a, a, a fleshly desire. So, if I don't want my sin, then I would welcome that correction into my life. There's some different things that come up when we're talking about correcting people and their sin. Well, what if somebody's wrong and they, 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 they misinterpret something in my life as sin? And I think, well, oh well, at least they were aiming for holiness and aiming to help me to pursue the goodness of God and right uh, relationship with Him and right fellowship with God. At least they were pursuing life for me. Well, what if they were just aiming to make themselves look good and they really just wanted to put you down and make you feel bad? Well... Oh well, like I, I've been confronted before, and I don't, I don't like it in the moment, obviously, but I, I've been confronted on sin where either I legitimately, both of these have happened, I legitimately don't agree and, and think, no, you just misread something, I'm, I'm really not in sin, but the, the way that you're seeing it is, is, is just not, not clear or not correct. Or I've been confronted by people, I think, for their own selfish reasons, because they want to make themselves feel better or put, put me down or put me in my place or whatever. So I've been confronted for both of those reasons, I think, I mean, by my perception. And after some conversation, that like that's worst case scenario. They, they've misjudged something or they're even doing it for their own good and not for me. Worst case scenario, what happens in that situation? I become especially attuned to that type of potential for sin in my life, even if it wasn't there, and I carefully avoid that sin. So it really didn't hurt anything. It really um, potentially makes me even more uh, more likely to avoid that sin. So as a receiver of, of rebuke or correction, the only way that I can lose is if I don't listen to it because they may be right. And even if they're wrong, there's, there's something that I can learn from it. And, and I want Christ-likeness. I want holiness. I want an abundant life that comes from following the holy ways of God. I want to rid my life of those things that draw me away from God, that distract me from serving Him. I want to properly display that I and we together are the glory of God as a temple of his spirit. Like, I want to communicate those things. So from my perspective, anything that you can tell me um, is, is potentially helpful for me. But there's another side to this, and this is kind of what I want to uh, lock in on tonight. 
the Bible gives clear instruction to the confronter, not the receiver of the of the rebuke or correction, but the one who is uh, putting themselves out there to, to call that to attention. And I just want to talk that through. And don't worry, the end result of this isn't going to be we become a church with a bunch of sin police that everybody's like, well, this is what I see in you, and this is what I see in you, and we're just always pointing <laughs> things out in each other's life. Um, and we, we all have these whistles that we're constantly blowing at any little minor infraction that we see in each other. Like, that's not how it's going to turn out. So, um, so the first thing I just want to talk about, and, and by the way, the New Testament talks about um, confronting sin in other people significantly more than, than we might think. It's not just a a, a one-verse kind of thing. It's not just Matthew 18. That's the focus that we'll have in a minute here. But, um, so first of all, when to confront and who to confront. Okay? To say, hey, I, there's, there's sin in your life and, and you have to change. This is not the holiness that God desires from this temple among us. So here are the, the requirements of when and who to confront. The requirements, first of all, when you're confronting somebody in, in, in their sin and, and telling them, hey, this is something worthy of repentance. Um, the Bible is very clear that, that that is done with believers, specifically. Like, between believers. So... Matthew 18, if a brother sins, in Matthew 18 specifically, if a brother sins against you, but that's, a, that's another believing person sins against you, then you go and you tell them their fault, and there's a process that you, take, that you follow. Galatians 6, another one of the big um, restoring and erring brother kind of passage, restoring and erring brother type of passage. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, brothers... Paul says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But that's among the brothers, okay? Um, Jesus says in Matthew 7, in the whole, um, you have a log in your eye and you're trying to remove a speck out of your brother's eye. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your brother. Like, it's always brother, it's always familial language, church, family. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, a passage that talks about, man, there's this person that's in some severe um, sexual sin that's unrepentant and then is um, just seems to be in a, in a way flaunting that. It, it says that if that is a person who bears the name of brother, or some translations say, if, if that is a so-called brother or so-called sister, then there's a, there's a way that we handle that. He goes on to say, In this case, he says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then he says, for what have I, what have I to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? What have I to do with judging them? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul says. So this is all done, and we'll talk more about maybe what that looks like, but this is all done within the church family. My job uh, as one who is, is, is concerned about the holiness of, of this temple of God isn't to go outside of the temple and start correcting all of the sin around me outside of the temple. They're, God is, is their judge. Now that doesn't mean in part of our message of of, um, the, of the good news they find out about, hey, there's actually there's judgment for sin. Um, but when it comes to confronting somebody uh, in a way that Scripture talks about in the New Testament, we're, we are confronting a brother in Christ that, or sister in Christ. Um, so that kind of knocks out a lot of people. I don't, I don't go around to all my non-Christian friends and start saying, you... Here's what you need to change. This is not what God wants. Because I understand they don't, they don't subscribe to this book. They don't believe this is true. They have no interest in following what Scripture says. I'm not going to challenge them to follow this. And I'm going to let kind of the Lord do the speaking on um, their sin in general, being uh, bringing their own condemnation. But um, 
that's actually kind of a relief to some of our Christian friends, I feel like, that are, that are used to kind of Christian Bible thumpers that they see um, who are real concerned about the sin of those outside the church. And, you know, I tell people, hey, we're responsible for the life that we've lived, and God tells us uh, what that responsibility entails. But I'm not going to go picking apart your life because I know that you don't have any interest in, in being holy, at least in the same sense that, that me and my believing family does. So <clears throat> the requirements, first, so-called brother. Second, uh, when confronting somebody, you should confront with something that is a clear biblical sin. It's not I'm confronting you because you annoy me. No, like you need to repent because I'm bothered by your personality. Um, the the verses that I was just reading from they say sin and transgression and guilt, and um, it's not it, it's not even you hurt me, and so I have to confront you on this. Now it might be good practical communication skills to tell somebody hey, you've hurt me, and when you said this, it made me feel this way. Like, that might actually be helpful, but that's a different thing than confronting sin, saying you need to repent and turn back to Christ and be restored in relationship with God. Um, it's also not even, like, this kind of a confrontation or rebuke isn't even saying you're acting unwisely, though that might be helpful. I try to do that with, with certain close individuals in my life to say, man, I, I just... You know, help me think this through. I want to help you think this through. Um, we can talk about wisdom, but if you're going to confront, so you need to be restored to the Lord and to the, the fellowship of the church because you need to repent and turn from the sin. You should have a verse or some verses where you can say, God's word is clear on this, and we, I'm going to call you to this, not just I'm going to call you to something that I kind of feel about you, okay? Um, and, and, and we're not, like, nitpicky in this either. It's not like, man, we split the lunch bill the other day, and you got a drink, and I didn't, and I paid half, so you stole $3 from me. <laughs> it's, like, it's not nitpicky. We give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, another thing that we don't... Another reason to confront or when to confront is we we can we are confronting people in sin, in in um, unrepentant sin. So we're all actively struggling with sin and trying to deny our our flesh and trying to walk in the spirit. And I'm not trying to bring up things in your life and bring to your attention things that you already know and you're already working hard at repenting of and following Christ and walking in the spirit of. Not rubbing those things in your face. Sometimes, maybe a similar sort of thing is we'll have somebody who's a, a new believer, somebody who, who hasn't been following Christ long, they don't really know what scripture says. I'm not just <clears throat> pray the sinner's prayer with them and I'm standing with a list of, well, here's everything in your life that you need to change. <laughs> They haven't even had a chance to repent or think it through. But you guys, you know what I'm talking about. Like you Sometimes it's like, man, and people will say, I had no idea I was doing this. I didn't even know that's something that God doesn't desire from me. And so um, it, we're not going around addressing things that, that people haven't had been given the opportunity to, to repent about. Again, we're not the sin police. Um, and, and it's not not probably something that, hey, you messed up once, and now I'm going to confront you on this thing. Like, if, if people know this is this is sin, and I want to repent of this, then it's not a matter of going through a Matthew 18 process. That's the point of the process, is that they would repent and turn, um, turn back to following Christ. So, you could say we confront people on, on, on willingly <coughs> disobedient sin. They know that script. They're aware that scripture says something, and they're choosing to do otherwise. Uh, there's a great passage in Numbers that kind of talks about different types of sin. Um, it says this in Numbers 15: If one person sins unintentionally, have you ever sinned unintentionally? Like I didn't even. I didn't know really, or I just it was. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. Okay, there's still that sin still has to be atoned for. It's still sin, but it was an unintentional sin. 
And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for that person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Cool. But the person who does anything with a high hand, and that's just a Hebrew way of saying knowingly disobeying God. It's, it's, I'm, I'm giving the finger to God. I know what you say. I know what you've called me to. And I'm intentionally going to choose otherwise. The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person, now this is Old Testament, but that person should be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord. He, he, he knows God's word. In this case, this, these Mosaic uh, laws. He, he knows what God has designed. He's saying, I'm despising that. I'm choosing my own way instead. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So the, there's no room within God's holy temple, his people, for high-handed sin. Now, we're going to sin plenty but what we do as believers is we repent of that sin. And we don't, we don't persist in it. And so the sin that we repent of is, is paid for by a goat in the Old Testament. It's paid for, for us by Jesus. The sin of a high hand is paid for by you who are giving the high hand. Unless you repent. Okay, so who and when to confront. You confront brothers and sisters in Christ. You confront with clear biblical sin, and you confront when sin is, is not being repented of, that they are aware of and are choosing otherwise. The process, kind of the clearest process that we get from Matthew 18, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Matthew 18, verse starts in 15. Just pull out a few things from this. I know this is real familiar to some of you, but a good reminder, hopefully. And again, we ought to do this. This is, these are um, commands. In this case, this is command from Jesus, okay? We don't just avoid these things. If your brother, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother, there it is, sins against you. That's a good reminder of those first two things. If a brother, okay, somebody in this family of God, Sins. Make sure it's a clear sin. Okay, if a brother sins against you, in this case it's against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or somebody that doesn't know God. So, step one, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go in private to that person and tell them about it. Don't tell your pastor first. <laughs> I hope there's a lot, a lot of sin in this church that I never hear about because you have practiced step one with each other and you've gone to each other in private. That's the, that's the um, step one. Now, this has probably happened to all of us in a number of ways. Um, this might even be a real uh, casual, informal thing, or this might be something that you've built up and you're just you know, real nervous to talk to the person but you feel like you ought to for their sake and for God's glory. Uh, but um, I would say I, I hope that, like I was asking Mary about the dinner, I hope that we could, say, when we see something in our lives, we're pretty close, have a pretty close relationship, Mary Beth and I, um, I, I hope that, that she would say, and at times I think we do say, man, when, when you did this, I think I don't think it was it was honoring to God. I don't think that's what God desires of us. And I might do the same with her at times. So it doesn't have to be a huge thing, but I'm not going talking to everybody else first, saying, oh, I'm going to have to talk to Mary Beth about this. What do you think? And do you think it's, it's going, going private? Like that's, that's how it all begins, going private. And I would hope that usually the process stops right there. If we are spirit-filled believers, then 
the person who is who is receiving that rebuke says either I see that you're right I need to repent or I, I don't know that you're right but even if you're not right I'm going to be especially careful about that because maybe you are right I don't know um, and, and then the process stops right there so if you ever hear people talk about church discipline oftentimes we say church discipline and we're talking about the final step of well, when somebody's excommunicated from the church and it's this big ordeal and people are really upset, how can you bring their sin, their, their private sin into the public eye and all this stuff? God has given us a system to where most of these things can be shut out in private between two people and it doesn't have to be a big ordeal. Go to his, tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I would say he or she has proven themselves to be a brother or sister. They've received that. They're aiming for the same holiness that you are. They hate sin just as much as you hate your own sin. You guys are wanting to demolish the sin not only in your own lives, but in the lives of us as the people of God. You agree. You move forward. You work towards repentance. Um, you help the person work towards repentance. And then you don't have to read the next verse. Step two, if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I don't think that this is talking about you have to take witnesses who witnessed the person in their sin. I think it's talking about witnesses who can see the, the witness the process happen. And you can say, this is, you, you can come together, all of you, and say, this is, this is what I have seen in this person's life, and because I desire for them to be in fellowship with the Lord and with us and because I desire this temple to be presenting a holy, beautiful picture of God, I'm, I'm confronting them on this and then they can lay out, well, here's why I'm, I'm choosing to do this, here's why it's not sin, here's why whatever, and then you have these another person or two who, who can add into that equation, into that judgment, if you will. There's several times in Scripture that you see, like, as human beings, we don't trust just the judgment of one person. But in the Old Testament, if you're establishing any charge against somebody, you, you, you have two or three witnesses to that. Because one person can either be lying, they can be misinterpreting scripture, whatever it is, one person can get off real easily. But there's validity and weight, and God uses multiple Christians together, in our case, to, to validate and to confirm what the truth is. That makes sense? Like, there's, there's more... I guess you could say there's more of, of God's spirit present <laughs> in, in multiple people. That's probably a theologically inaccurate thing to say, but there's, there's, a, there's a weight that two or three people can bring that one person. Like, if it's one person, it's one person's word against another person's word. How are you going to decide what's right in that? Or if you have two or three people agreeing on something, then truth is established. That's, that's where the end of this passage kind of ends. So if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If everybody is in agreement and this person is saying, no, I'm still choosing to do this sin in my life, then it says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Maybe some of you have experienced this in a church. Um, and I'd say different churches kind of handle it in different ways. There's different ways to tell the church. Maybe some people would bring it to the elders of the church, or maybe there's other forums to do that. Bring it to the church. To a lot of people who see a church practice this level of, of accountability, to a lot of people it seems extreme. Like, how, how dare you bring this poor person's sin before everybody here. It seems extreme. But we have to understand that it's become, that at this point that sin has become kind of all hands on deck, everybody agreeing for two reasons. Because for one, a person who is unrepentant of sin signifies somebody who isn't following Jesus. They're, they're, they're high-handedly sinning. They're not following Christ. And 
not submitting your life to Christ is death. Like you're showing evidence of not even being a believer. And so, yes, it's a very important thing that we're bringing to this person. We don't want them fooled into thinking you just continue and you kind of live however you want as a as a Christian. Well, no, you don't. But God is a something that He has called us to, a type of life that He has called us to live into. And if you, if your life isn't displaying that, then we are warning you. <laughs> And we are calling you to turn, to change your mind, to repent, and now to follow Christ and be restored to him and to his church. So, yeah, it is extreme. It's also extreme because of we are the temple of God. We are a holy temple housing a holy God. And we are communicating something to people outside of the temple, to the nations around us, about who God is. And if we are just sweeping sin under the rug then that communicates something to people about who God is. And um, God is a holy God, and he cares. We've said he hates sin. Sin is what separates people from God. So all this to say, it, it, it might seem extreme, but it's like these are extreme circumstances. This person has been, has been fooling themselves that they actually are a follower of Christ, or they just need to be shaken up to, to actually return to him. Um, and you're, you're polluting the the name of Christ. Um, that's why Paul's so upset in 1 Corinthians 5 with this, this gross sin that this person in the church is committing. And he's like, man, not even, not even the, the pagans do this kind of sin, and you guys are just kind of turning a blind eye. No, 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 that can't be. So step three is it goes to the church, and that is an effort to turn the person back to following Christ. And the fourth step, uh, it says, if he refuses, uh, if he refuses to listen to even the church, then let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector. <clears throat> um, there's probably, frankly, I haven't put a lot of, of thought into this. I think, well, how do we treat a gentile and a tax collector? Well, we treat them with love, and we um, we care for them, and we preach the gospel to them. And, um, but there does seem to be, from other passages, like um, uh, like Matthew 5 and like some passages talking about false teaching in the church, where there is some sort of dissociation from a person. So there's, like I see it, there's kind of, there's three categories of people. There's those who are not claiming to be a Christian, not claiming to be a part of the church, who I'm, I'm not their judge. I'm not going around judging their actions because that's, again, that's the, um, the, uh, 1 Corinthians, whatever it is. This is all 1 Corinthians stuff. They have major sin problems. Um, it, that person is outside the church, and it's not my job to, to try to be gauging their life. There's also the person, the, the brothers inside the church, who are either with us in this, in pursuing Christ and holiness in our lives, and then there's the so-called brother, which we're not sure about because their life is demonstrating something that is contrary to holiness and they don't seem to care about it and they don't seem willing to conform their life to what Christ calls us to and it's that, it's kind of that middle category that um, to say the least I think we have to be careful about our association with them to the extent that we don't want to communicate that it is okay as God's people to not repent from sin, and this person, as a, is saying, I'm a representative of Christ. I'm a representative of His people. I'm a Christian, and and, and is living in a way that's contrary to that, de- defiantly living in a way that's contrary to that. We can't, as the church, say that's okay. Yes, they're a part of our church. They're just a part of all the same activities that all of us are. But we have to have some sort of a of a disconnect from that person. Now, I'm gonna. Save that for a, maybe a time when we actually have to get to that step in this if, in this church. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, and there's probably a lot of wisdom that has to be um, considered in that. But I do know that if we are properly being the family of God, as we described, then to be removed from the fellowship from that family should hurt a lot. And it should be... that person should be missing something by lacking fellowship with the church. Now, it's, um, 
it's especially hard in our culture to, to figure out how to apply these things because if somebody leaves our church, they just go to the next church that will kind of accept them and doesn't know about the stuff that's going on in their life. And um, so maybe there's some questions and we could dialogue about what that would look like if, if a person ever uh, in our church gets to that step. I have found oftentimes that a lot of times people before ever being kind of presented to the church or being mentioned to the church as somebody who is unrepentant of sin and that um, we need to be separated in a sense from them, before that ever gets to that point, that person has either moved away or, or rejected Christianity or they've kind of proven themselves as an unbeliever anyway. So um, anyway, there's that. Uh, but I got to move on. So, but most of the stuff is is settled at, at the beginning of that. Even before the confrontation, oh, I need to talk to you about the sin that I see in your life. Even before that ever comes up, maybe that person, hopefully we as believers who have the Spirit of God, we're convicted of our sin even before somebody has to tell us about it. And so we repent and we follow Christ. But all of this is important. God takes seriously because he takes sin seriously and it's something that we should want. Real quickly, the heart how we should go about um, doing this. Our church better be full of love for the Lord and full of love for each other. If I really love you guys, then I want sin in your life destroyed just as much as I want sin in my life destroyed if we really love each other. I love in the Galatians verse after it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He says... In verse 2, Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you confront somebody on sin, it's not going to be easy. And part of the reason that it's not going to be easy is just not just because of the relational conflict, but it's not going to be easy because Part of that confrontation is a willingness to, to bear a burden with that person. So if I'm calling somebody out of sin, I'd say I'm not putting myself in a position to help them in that process of repentance. I'll give you an example. There's been at least a couple times in um, Mary Beth and my marriage where we will um, approach somebody, sometimes individually at first, trying to go along with the 18 passage. Um, but in, in confronting somebody, we'll say, man, you're, you're living in the sin. Specifically, it's very common in our day and age with a, with a couple who's dating and they're um, sexually active with, the, with each other, which is against God's design as a sin. And we'll say, we're, we're calling you out of this. This is not what God has. And a lot of people don't even know. They're like, okay, wow, I didn't realize that was actually a thing. And man, I thought that was just like old school, whatever. Part of that process, though, part of that process, at least a couple of times, has been Mary Beth and I saying, if you want to repent, then one of you live with us right now. Like, you can move in with us so we can help you to get out of that sin. You don't have to decide, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what I'm going to do for the bills and I don't know how I'm going to pay this because I'm living with this person. It's so convenient. Fine, we will help you in that process so that you can repent and turn towards what God has for you. Once we've been taken up on that, once we have. Um, but that's 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 part. I'm, I'm loving those people so much that I'm I, I, part of this process of wanting to bear one another's burdens. Like I'm going at this with you. We're trying to defeat sin and the power of the Spirit together. Correcting somebody isn't just putting them in their place and then walking away. Well, I hope you figure that out. I hope you repent. But it's, it's bearing each other's burdens. Um, so we do it hum lovingly. We do it humbly. Real quick. We confront sin humbly. If you're confronting somebody on sin, I would say, here are ways that I have also struggled with this emotion. Or here's some sin in my own life that I'm also working through. And so I want you to know that we're in this together. I see this in your life, and there's things that, that people can point out in my life that I'm actively working against. But it's, it's a humble recognition that I'm not saying I don't have sin. I'm deceiving myself if I say that. Um, that's why in this Galatians 6 passage that says that you go to somebody and you're, you're gently restoring them, it says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
You might even say if you're confronting somebody, hey, I could easily fall into this very type of sin. I'm not above you in this battle against sin. Um, that Matthew verse, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you, not be, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So make sure when you're confronting somebody that you're willing to be judged by that same standard. So you come to them humbly, and hopefully that's something that they can recognize and see. And you don't confront somebody on something that you're unwilling to be confronted on yourself. So lovingly, humbly, forgivingly, um, after that Matthew 18 passage, um, that's when Peter asked Jesus, how many times, like if a brother sins against me, okay, cool, he's restored, but how many times do I have to forgive him? And Jesus, yeah, it says 70 times 7, or more times than you can count. You just keep forgiving, and you keep forgiving, and you keep forgiving. So if somebody repents, we rejoice, and they're going to mess up again, and they're going to repent again, and we're going to rejoice again, and we keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And um, lastly, just kind of some of the heart behind it is this is this is all for the purpose of of restoration or the purpose of restoring fellowship with with between that person and God that's unhampered by their sin, and even restoring relationship uh, one with another in the church. So you're not confronting somebody to make yourself feel better. You're not confronting somebody to be like a five-year-old kid just telling on somebody. Well, Dad, look what look what this person did. Um, but it's for it's for two reasons. It's for their sake, for their right relationship with God, and it's for the sake of God's temple, the witness that we together bear um, the name of Christ. And we can't. We don't want to communicate. We serve this all-powerful, sovereign Master, and we can also kind of do whatever we want. That's that's just not true. So. Um, Y'all, I say all this to say we don't have to go around searching for sin in each other's life. Like, we'll see it. I think what we have to do is not ignore it in our own lives and in each other's life. So I'm not saying we just especially have to will down and just start taking notes of everybody's life and being in everybody's business in that way. But we, I think we're commanded to live in a way that restores people who are unrepentant or who are veering this way and that, and if it's a command, then it's, that's something that we have to do. To kind of just wrap up, wrap that up. Why are we doing this? We're a holy temple. Our holiness is bearing witness to the reality of another kingdom and another king, and our holiness says something about that reality. And when we are not holy, when we're not distinct, when we're not set apart, when we're not other, we become like any other worldly club or organization or common interest group. And the the less we confront sin, the less we stand out, and the less we stand out, the less visible the presence of God is. And we're supposed to be the focal point of the presence of God. So, in a sense, we do draw distinctions in our group. Those who are working together with the church toward holiness and those that aren't. And this isn't, the church isn't a club where everybody, where we think we're so holy, we're a club that loves to repent and loves to turn to Christ and to work with each other towards the holiness that he calls us to. Um, I don't have time, but spend some time if you can tonight or soon to read Second uh, Corinthians chapter 6. It's the one that talks about don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's not that's not a marriage passage, though it's, it can be used to refer to marriage, like don't marry an unbeliever. But um, there's a lot that that says. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And it goes on to say, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and fear of the Lord. overarching picture in this. Why does it matter that we are this holy temple? What matters, just like the Old Testament temple, was purpose to tell the glory, the magnificence, the beauty, the holiness of God. And so in the strength of God's spirit, that's what we strive to tell with our lives, and we make no apologies in that. And Striving towards that holiness will mean reading and studying the word together to know what that even is, because we don't just 
naturally know that. That's something that the Spirit reveals to us and is given to us through His Word. Next year, we're going to talk a lot about keeping the commands of the Lord and just being obedient to what God calls us to do. Um, but in our church, this is a, a missing component in a lot of churches. The, the, the proper confrontation of sin or rebuke of sin. And it's, it's clear to me that it's something that is called for in, uh, in the Bible of Christians. So I, I just want to tell you guys and warn you guys, and I said this last, like, three years ago in October, that if, you, if you're claiming Christ, you're claiming to be a follower of His, believing in Him, and if you're in regular fellowship with us, you are opening yourself up to this type of correction. Now, I'm not saying that that means we're going to blab everybody's sin to the whole church. That's, remember, that's the step that's far down the line. But we're going to hold each other to the holiness that God calls us to. And we're, I know we're struggling through it. We're, we're a long way off, and we're not even going to get, going to get there. But God is, wants to do this work among us. And so we will do this with each other, not because we want to make ourselves look good, but because we want to make God look as good as he is. And we want, um, we want what's best for one another. So my warning to you is if you refuse to walk in the statutes of the Lord, then we will lovingly, humbly, forgivingly offer correction through a very gracious process. And if you still, after that, refuse to follow the Lord, then we will no longer consider ourselves in fellowship with you because apparently you aren't, as best we can tell, a living stone in the temple of God. And you need to know that, and other people need to know that, for your own sake and for the sake of the showing the holiness of God. And y'all, I want people to know how incredible God is. And, and it's good that God hates evil and sin because it brings death and destruction and hell. And the world around us, I mean, people are going to balk at us looking into each other's lives and aiming for holiness together what the world doesn't want is more of the same of what they have. Like that, I was just reading about the decline of attendance, of church attendance in America, and that decline is happening primarily in churches who won't address sin as sin. So if you have a church that just kind of has a, well, yeah, you can just kind of do whatever you want, we're not going to really you know, teach any truth, those are the churches that are on the decline in America. It's not, it's not the churches that are holding to say, we believe scripture is true and we're faithfully trying to follow this. But it's those who are saying, now yeah, sin isn't any big deal. So I'm just saying, that what, that's apparent to me that the world isn't just looking for something that's just like itself to support everything that itself is doing. The world is looking for somebody to stand on truth and they're looking for something different and deep down, whether they know it or will submit to it or not, they're looking for the holiness of God. They, they, they they desire something different than what is being offered. And so we won't put them on display when we just brush sin under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist and we really don't look any different than anybody else. So I hope that our desire as a church is that people would see God because we stand out, because there's a holy work that he is doing among us. And I hope that next year we have even more of a witness in our holiness and our obedience to Jesus than we have this year if we have the same numbers. And then the next year even more. And I hope that we can look back and say, man, God has brought us on this process and we are able to, to show the glory of God in such a cool way because of this work that he's done in us. And it's been painful and there's been some awkward conversations, but we're all shooting for the, the same thing as brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to display God well. We want to be in fellowship with him. We want to hate sin. We want to get it out of our life because that's what brings everything that we don't like. And we want to follow him wholeheartedly. So that's, uh, I had a lot to say, but let me pray. And then, uh, <laughs> that's it. Father, thanks for um, giving us your word. Thank you for giving us truth. Thank you for those uh, so much in scripture that's just very clear. You tell us, here's how we ought to walk. And we understand it. And I confess, God, that at times we are, um, 
we are confused and we misinterpret things and there's other times that that for even a brief time we we raise a high hand and you say I, I know what's right I'm going to choose the wrong way but God help us to be a people of repentance help us to walk with each other through that to challenge each other to that to challenge ourselves to that to be willing to be challenged by each other to walk towards holiness to repent to turn from our sin to turn towards you and all this Lord so that this community would see that our God is greater than all gods um, because his, his temple is holy. May they look to our church as a focal point of your presence here on this earth and be able to say that is something that's different, that's something that's other, that's something that's set apart, that stands apart, that is, is different than the world. And they take that seriously and that's a reality to them. And then may their minds be opened up to the reality of the kingdom of God in Christ. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.